0: whether you're at a point of having to make a career choice or you simply like to hear what others are passionate about. This podcast is about the workers who make up our nation's economy. I'm your host, Allie Nielsen, and this is Employed.
1: I get to wake up every day and go to a job where I contribute to the national security and to the national interest of the United States. And to be able to do that in a public service capacity in a job that is so fulfilling is really personally meaningful to me.
0: Thank you so much, Nicole, for coming on to the show to share with everyone what you do. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you
1: so much, Ali, for having me on today. My name is Nicole, as you said, and I'm a Foreign Service Officer for the U.S. Department of State, meaning in layman's terms, I'm a diplomat who works for the Department of State overseas, and I'm joining you on this call right now from Seoul, South Korea where I'm currently serving as a vice consul in the consular section of the U.S. Embassy.
0: That is fascinating. I am so excited to learn more about this career. Let's back up and ask what made you interested in this field?
1: Sure. So I'm a bit of an anomaly. I learned about the Foreign Service when I was very young, and it was a combination of My father, having done some work with the State Department and also growing up in Northern Virginia, where there were a lot of State Department families. So I was exposed earlier than most to this career option. And I always thought being a diplomat would be the coolest thing. And so it was my dream ever since I was a little kid to be a diplomat, which is not the case for most of the people in the Foreign Service. Most of the people in the Foreign Service that I've met learn about it in college, after college, perhaps even as a second or a third career. And so that's another thing that I really love about the Foreign Service is that there's no set track that you have to get a certain degree as an undergraduate and then go through a certain path to get into the Foreign Service. There's a million paths uh, to join. And for me, it happened to be a little more traditional of going to school. I going to undergraduate and then I went to graduate school and the whole time I was applying for the foreign service and it took me three tries to get into the foreign service. So I'm kind of public about the fact that I didn't make it through on the first two and you can try once per year. So The advice that I give people who are interested in the Foreign Service is that if you, say, listen to this podcast episode and you think it sounds awesome, which you should because it's a great career, and you decide you want to apply, then I would say just start. The first step is registering for and taking the Foreign Service exam. And that's the exam that you can take once per year and it's free. You don't lose anything by taking it. And so that was my perspective going in and applying. And every time I applied, I learned something about the process and my score improved. And so for me, it was always it was always a dream. And so to have been able to actually join and have gone to my first assignment, which was in Kenya and now to my second assignment in South Korea has totally lived up to my wildest dreams and expectations.
0: You touched on the exam that was required. What other education and experience do you need? So technically, the
1: only requirement is to get through the process that was set in, I believe the legislation is the Foreign Service Act of 1980, which includes the Foreign Service exam. There's another step called the Foreign Service Oral Assessment, which is, a multi-part interview that takes most of the part of a day where you'll interview with other candidates that are also applying for the foreign service but the other details of the process have changed quite a bit over the years so i joined the foreign service in 2017 and even since then the process has already changed since when i joined so when i joined the first step was taking the foreign service exam and then there would if you passed there would be a middle stage where you submit essays uh, for a panel to review. If you pass that step, then you go on to an interview. If you pass that step, then there's a medical clearance and security clearance process. And if you make it through all of that, you go on a hiring list where you're ranked by your interview score. And there are certain things that can give you extra points to boost your score, such as if you speak a critical needs language and you test in that language, then you might be able to bump up your score with points But certain things about that process have changed. Now, when you register for the initial test, you submit those essays already when you register for the test. And that, to me, makes a lot more sense because you spend less time waiting. They can start reviewing your essays right away instead of waiting to give you time to write them and then submit them. And it's a little more transparent. And so they're always making little tweaks to the process like that. But it is very involved. There's a lot of steps. And it takes a really long time. That's something that I think a lot of people who may not be familiar with the process may not realize is that the whole thing takes a very long time. I have friends who uh, went through the process and even if they got through on their first try, it took them years just to make it through every single step. For me, if you go, to, I actually have a blog, it's called N And maybe you can put that on the website, but i published my timeline of the date I took the test, the date I sent in the essays, how long my security clearance took. And I did that because I read a bunch of other people's blogs when I was applying. And I was always looking for recent information on how long the process might have taken. Because of course, we all have lives. We all want to make career plans. But because it takes so long, I always advise folks to start early if you think you're interested and then to keep trying and don't give up. I also want to caveat and say that this process that I'm talking about is specific to being a foreign service officer at the Department of State. There are so many different kinds of foreign service categories. There's foreign service specialists at the Department of State that are a little more specialized in their career track and have more specialized requirements for applying for the job. There are foreign service agricultural officers, commercial officers. There's really a wide range out there and I don't want to speak about something that I don't know as much about but for state department you can also go to the state department website careers.state.gov and they'll have the most up-to-date information about what the process looks like right now but there's no educational requirement either I, I just want to mention that there is even no requirement that you have a bachelor's degree though I have yet to meet someone without a bachelor's degree in the state department foreign service right now Anecdotally, most folks who are joining now have a master's degree or some type of some type of advanced degree, but there's no requirement that if you don't have that then you won't stand a chance of getting in.
0: And what about language? You know, you mentioned coming back and studying Korean for a little bit is knowing a certain language required? So when you are applying to join the foreign
1: service, you're not required to know a second language or to know any foreign language, but as I had mentioned before, if there's a need for that language and you test in that language, you can get additional points that will help you in the hiring process right at the very end. In general, if the Department of State needs you to know a language for a particular job and they want to send you to do that job, they will provide you the training to learn that language. And so for my current job in South Korea, I needed Korean language skills. And I uh, took a, I believe it was a nine-month course in DC, studying Korean full-time, which is an incredible opportunity for folks that really enjoy learning languages and learning about other cultures. The whole time I was studying, able to take classes five hours a day, five days a week, plus homework. It is really a full-time schedule, but the whole course of study, I'm able to make my regular salary at my job because it's considered part of my job to learn that language. And now that I'm here in South Korea, I do use that language for my visa interviews and at work. And so I think it makes a lot of sense for us to go ahead and invest in people uh, to acquire the skills that they need to do the job. Though, of course, if you come in, if I had come in and let's say I was already fluent in Korean, then I don't need that language training. They could have slotted me in for a job that needed it right away. And so that was actually my background was studying a little more Middle East studies. I studied Arabic in college and in graduate school and studied abroad in Oman. And when I joined the Foreign Service, I did test in Arabic and passed the Arabic test. But as you can tell from the fact that I went to Kenya and South Korea, I haven't (laughs) used my Arabic skills so much in my job yet. I have opportunities here and there. But if I were to go to an Arabic speaking country, then I probably would not need the full course of Arabic language training. I would just get a top-up of my language skills for whatever that particular job requires. So it's pretty flexible, especially for State Department Foreign Service officers. i found that they are very willing and very supportive of people taking the time they need to get the skills and acquire proficiency for languages.
0: And tell us a little bit about what being a diplomat means.
1: So being a diplomat, evokes a certain image in people's mind for maybe more cynical folks. They picture pinstripe suit wearing cookie pushers at cocktail parties. And for other folks, they maybe have this romanticized vision of, you know, you're meeting with the prime minister on day one. And it's really neither of those things. I think being a diplomat is so much more broad and expansive than is portrayed in the popular conception or is portrayed in kind of our entertainment media. It's everything from providing people-to-people connections to helping build up our commercial and trade ties with other countries because we can strengthen each other economically and strengthen people's livelihoods through that type of relationship. It's the educational partnerships that happen at the university level or sister city level. It's, of course, the traditional relationship that we have with each other's governments, but even that is not just the Department of State and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of whatever country we're building that relationship with, but it's, for example, partnering on prosecuting or addressing transnational organized crime with the Ministry of Justice. It's all of these things that are kind of encompassed under the umbrella of diplomacy. And I think that's what makes diplomacy such a unique and interesting field to work in is is that diversity of issues that you cover the meaningfulness of the work. Uh, To me, I get to wake up every day and go to a job where I contribute to the national security and to the national interest of the United States. And to be able to do that in a public service capacity in a job that is so fulfilling is really personally meaningful to me. And it's that way for many of my colleagues as well, regardless of what type of job they're doing, a lot of us drawn to this work for public service reasons because if you just want to live abroad there's of course many other career paths that you could take you could teach english you could work for an international corporation but the thing that draws people into diplomacy i think really is that public service aspect or national security aspect that you know you are a steward of taxpayer dollars you know that you are doing your part to keep your country safe and to keep your country prosperous and to promote values that we believe support rule of law and order uh, around the world, I think is something that, that a lot of people in our field, we realize that we're lucky to have that. I'll just, I'll just put it that way, that uh, we're very fortunate uh, to be able to wake up every day and go to a job that allows us to, to do those things, which are so
0: meaningful. And one of my big questions is, do you get to pick the country that you are assigned to? Or is it completely random? Do you at least get to pick the area or the continent?
1: So it is a mix. It is a mix of our preferences as officers and, of course, taking our family's preferences into account, hopefully, when we are uh, expressing where we would like to go and what we call needs of the service. So at the end of the day, if it's the needs of the service that you go to a particular place you're going to that particular place. But of course, they're not out here to send people to places where they or their family will be truly unhappy. So they do a mix of incorporating both of those things. Especially at the entry level, you have a bit less control. You express your preferences, they assign you, and then you go where they assign you, but they've taken your preferences into account. As you rise up the ranks, you have more control over where you can go. You have more of a chance to express your preferences and to lobby for why you should get a position at a particular post but at the entry level you don't have that flexibility I will say from my personal experience they are very accommodating of your preferences so Kenya was one of our top choices we didn't actually rank number one two three we didn't do anything like that for our first tour we had high ranked medium ranked and lower ranked and for us Nairobi, Kenya was one of our high-ranked posts, and we were very happy to get assigned there. And Seoul, South Korea was also one of our high-ranked posts for our second tour. So we've had a very positive experience. I'm sure they can't guarantee that for everybody, but it's been great for us. And I'm about to transition from the entry level to the mid-level. And so looking forward to kind of the next time that I'll be what we call bidding on my next job, I'll be looking at exercising more control and also having more responsibilities for going and securing that job that I really want. But there's a list of vacancies uh, usually that you're looking from when you know what jobs are available. So that'll have the job type, a description of the job, and also the city and the country Uh, that that job is in. So you have that information up front that you can use to make that decision of, okay, what job am I really going to go for or what job am I not even going to apply for? Because I know I wouldn't want to go there. And of course, you don't have to stay overseas. You can always come back to the United States and work, for example, at State Department headquarters in D.C.
0: Let's talk about demographics in this field, specifically race and gender. With you guys serving in different countries, do you find that there's a certain demographic pattern uh, that's present in the United States diplomats? Sure. I love
1: that you asked this question. There's been a big push for acknowledging women in the national security field more broadly. That was part of the Me Too movement. There was a hashtag Me Too NatSec for Me Too National Security. And women mostly across agencies of the U.S. government is what I've seen trying to raise Awareness about the role that women play in uh, defending the United States national security. But specifically to the State Department, the Government Accountability Office, also known as the GAO, a US agency in DC that is responsible for accountability across the federal government, released a report earlier this year. I believe it was January, doing a deep dive into demographics of the Department of State in particular. So I would encourage your listeners that are interested in this question to take a look at that report in particular because it drills down into what percentage of the civil service is a racial or ethnic minority? What percentage of the foreign service is? What are our attrition rates like as people are getting promoted? How are they getting less diverse? Is that a recruitment problem or is that a retention problem? And it goes in with a detailed breakdown and also detailed recommendations that I know have gotten a lot of political will and traction from those who support the Department of State among congressional representatives and also among Department of State leadership. To make a much shorter answer, at the entry level, we're doing a much better job now of recruiting more diversely. In my class of 74 entry-level officers, almost half were women and A decent number were various ethnic and racial minorities and uh, mixed race representatives. But I will say, as you go to the senior level, if you look at ambassadors around the world, they're still predominantly white, predominantly men. And we're slowly working on changing that. Something that we say all the time is that we really want the Foreign Service and the diplomatic corps of the United States to look like the United States. Part of our job is not just executing the duties that we've been hired to do in whatever that position is. It's also being the face of America, being the face of the United States of America to people all over the world. And so we need to represent the United States and its diversity. We know that it's one of our strengths, but we want to make sure that that message is getting across. So that's become a major priority for the Department of State. And I'm confident that that we're making progress towards those goals. I know I have been very happy with what I've seen in terms of changes that are being made, changes that are being discussed in order to improve retention, in order to improve uh, targeted recruitment. Something that I also want to mention for those of your listeners who uh, might be interested and who are maybe current undergraduates is that there are several fellowship programs that support diversity hiring at the Department of State. So the two main examples are what's called the Pickering Fellowship and the Rangel Fellowship. These fellowships are highly competitive for officers from underrepresented, for people from underrepresented groups who are interested in becoming Foreign Service officers. These fellowships provide mentorship, special training for the Foreign Service application process, and funding for a master's degree. Mm-hmm. So those are really kind of outstanding special programs. Some of my best friends in the Foreign Service are Pickering Fellows or Wrangell Fellows. If you have a listener who's thinking about going to graduate school for a master's degree program and is interested in the foreign service, I highly recommend they check out the Pickering Fellowship or the Rangel Fellowship, which both take a very broad view on diversity. They consider geographic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, religious diversity, LGBTQ diversity, racial and ethnic diversity. It's all um, something that we're invested in representing in the foreign service. And so... I just want to put in a plug for those programs.
0: Yes, thank you for those valuable pieces. And I will be linking the mentioned information in the episode notes. What salary can someone typically expect to make?
1: So it's funny because depending on the field of comparison that someone is doing, they'll either say our salary is great or our salary is not so great. Compared to doing a complete private sector consulting career track or working in finance, Our salary is not going to be comparable to that because, of course, we're funded by taxpayer dollars. So I think it's reasonable to expect that we're not going to be paying a Wall Street salary at the same time compared to other international affairs work, such as a lot of nonprofit work or, you know, those of my colleagues who come from an NGO background, the salary is quite good, I think. If you're interested in knowing the exact numbers for foreign service pay scales, you can actually Google them. They're all publicly available online as part of accountability to taxpayers. So you can Google uh, for foreign service officers, entry-level starting salary. When you pull that up, you'll see that there's a scale uh, that goes different steps within each grade. So a typical entry-level officer will start within a certain range, but if you're coming From a background with more experience and more education and a higher salary history, then the State Department does its best to put you on the higher end of that starting scale to compensate you to partially for taking that pay cut. But if you're an investment banker, they're probably not going to be able to match your previous salary, but they'll do their best to put you at the higher end of of that pay scale when you start.
0: Just a side note, I went ahead and looked this up. According to my research, the typical salary range is between $57,000 to about $112,000, depending on your education and qualifying experience.
1: I will say that to me, the benefits of being in the Foreign Service, not just, not just emotional, but the other financial benefits that come with being a Foreign Service officer are a really crucial part of the compensation package. So for example, when we live overseas, our housing is free the house that we live in is provided by the U.S. government. And so when you take a look at the salary, you have to account for all of the money that's being saved in rent. There's a lot of foreign service folks who will buy a house in the U.S. as an investment property and rent it out while they live overseas. Mm -hmm. And by the time they retire, they have a paid off home that they can retire to. So there are all of these benefits that come with being in the Foreign Service. One of my personal favorites, which this is a bit of a vanity benefit that I know is really great for some people, other people don't particularly care, is that if you get the main health insurance plan that most of us use called the Foreign Service Benefit Plan, you get... 50 massages a year covered oh. by this plan. And so there's all these benefits that I think really add to the compensation package. And just looking at the salary doesn't tell the full picture. But I will say I've been I've been happy with the salary. I didn't come into the Foreign Service with quite as much work experience. I was pretty fresh out of graduate school with my master's degree. And I was happy with the salary. I think it's very comparable to what you'll find elsewhere in the federal government with, of course, the added benefits that come with things like free housing, certain travel expenses paid. If you live, for example, in a place with a lot of hardship, then the government provides some support for you to be able to either go home and visit your family or go somewhere where you can go see a doctor or something like that. So there are different kinds of benefits that it's really important to take a look at. If it's the compensation package is something that you're interested in learning more about, you can find it all online.
0: And do you guys get things like 401ks or pensions or retirement packages? How does that work?
1: Yes. So that's one of the best benefits that we receive in the Foreign Service. So we have a pension and we have a retirement savings plan, which is the government retirement savings plan is the default. It's known as the thrift savings plan. And you can choose to invest in that. They'll uh, do matching for your contributions to that plan. So most Foreign service people who spend a full career in the foreign service, by the time they retire, they'll have not only Social Security, but they'll have a full retirement fund that their employer has been matching for their entire career. And they'll have a pension. And they'll have the opportunity in some cases to continue coverage through health insurance. So it's really quite, in my view, an excellent combination of retirement options. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have all of the other financial strategies that come with things, like I mentioned before, of buying a house and having renters pay off your mortgage while you live overseas so that you have a place to live. There's there's things like that where the Foreign Service can really position you well financially for retirement. The biggest thing to take into consideration if you are married or if you have a two-income household is the hit that you might take in terms of living overseas and having a partner whose career is not going to work with switching countries every few years. So that's something I would say if you're married or if you are in a two-income household, to make sure you have a lot of conversations about what that looks like for you. Because it is very difficult when you move countries every two or three years for someone to keep their career going unless it is either a remote career or something where they can quickly find work with a particular specialized skill or something like
0: that. What were your typical work hours pre-COVID?
1: I've only been at my current job during COVID, so I can't. Really, I I think it was pretty similar uh, to before. So right now I'm doing counselor work. I work from 7:30 to 4 p.m. and I and I get a lunch break. So for me that's fantastic work-life balance. Um, it's a very regular schedule. In my last job my schedule was a bit less regular because I had a lot of after-hours special events that I had to plan around. But my current job is a lot more regular. So that's another thing is that. When you're in the Foreign Service, the job you have at one post could look very different from the job you have at another post. And so the hours and the work will also be different. And in a typical day, I will do four to five hours of visa interviews for people who are applying for visas to come to the United States that are not immigrants. So for example, students that want to come study at our universities or research scholars who want to do an exchange program or someone who wants to come and invest a lot of money into the U.S. and create jobs for Americans and help boost our economy. Those are the types of people that we're interviewing every single day that's furthering the interests of the United States. So I find it to be really fun and interesting work. I get to talk to all kinds of interesting people. In, in one day, I might talk to an aspiring actress and someone who genetically modifies chickens and someone who just had a grandchild born in the US and wants to go visit them for the first time. It's just fascinating to get to hear so many different people's stories and to learn more about the country where we're serving and to learn more about what brings people to the United States. Mm So I find it really enjoyable. Outside of that, we have other parts of our portfolio that we work on. And so After I'm done with my interviews, I might go back to my desk uh, away from the interview window where I sit most of the day and work on training materials for new officers that are arriving to our section, or I might work on building relationships with other offices in the embassy so that we can better collaborate on uh, shared goals and things like that. So there's other little things that I work on besides interviews, but my main job is definitely Doing those interviews right now and using my judgment to make decisions uh, applying US immigration law. For folks that are in the United States and they're interested in the Foreign Service, you can learn more about the different career tracks because they'll have different hours generally. So, the job that I'm in now, Consular, is well known for having excellent work life balance generally. Mm -hmm. And so, that might be a really good option for uh, someone that wants a more regular schedule and a more reliable schedule. Um, so something that I, I definitely want to make sure that I mentioned and that you link to is that we have a program called Diplomats in Residence in the United States. So if you live in the U.S., then there is someone called a diplomat in residence assigned to your region who's, up to, who's a senior foreign service officer up to date on all of the current hiring processes. And their job is basically to do outreach and answer questions about recruitment and provide guidance to those who are interested in joining the Foreign Service. So you can just go online and find your diplomat and residence who's assigned to your area right now. And they wow. can be a great resource for you if you're if you're interested.
0: Is there a really good day that stands out to you or a good memory that reaffirmed to you that you were in the right field?
1: This is very cheesy, but I have so many really special moments that I've had that have really reaffirmed to me that this was the right career choice for me. And I don't think it's for everyone. I don't think, or I I think that there are certain people who really enjoy the dynamism of it and the adventure and thinking on your feet and having to change your skill set or grow and be pushed in that way. And I've personally really enjoyed that and found it fulfilling. So I guess the story that I'll pick is really sticks in my mind because it's one of my first stories after having joined the Foreign Service as an FSO. And so I was in Kenya for my first tour, and I learned that Nairobi hosts the biggest Comic-Con in East Africa. (laughs) And as a nerd, I'm I'm a total nerd, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could go to this Comic-Con, not just we, me, and my personal capacity, but we, the US government could go to this Comic-Con and do youth outreach, which was a major priority for my office at the embassy in Kenya. And I gathered all of my materials to make the case to my boss that we should go to Comic-Con. And I learned that our embassy in Tunisia had actually gone to the Tunisian Comic-Con and it had been this huge successful outreach program. So I came armed with that knowledge and all of their lessons learned from that activity. And I went to my boss. I was new. So I was ready to be shot down. You know, maybe I haven't spent enough time on the ground yet. And the moment I said, I think we should go to Comic-Con. My boss was like, great, make it happen. (laughs) And gosh, I loved my boss. She has become an amazing mentor to me. We're still in touch even years later. uh, And she's still giving me advice, but she was super supportive. And even though it was my first I think two weeks on the ground, she said, okay, organize our first ever outreach to East Africa Comic-Con. And it was called Nikon, Nairobi Comic-Con. And so I contacted the guy who was in charge of Nairobi Comic-Con. And he was just totally shocked that the US embassy <laughs> wanted to come to Comic-Con because it seemed so random. But I said, you know, we'd love to do some youth outreach and a lot of Comic-Con cultural products already have like an American tie in anyway. Mm-hmm. And it would just be really great if we could be a part of this event. And so we made it happen. We worked together with them and I had a team of volunteers from my office at the embassy that agreed to bear with me and to come to this <laughs> Comic-Con and give it a try. So we went there and set up our booth and decked it out in red, white, and blue. And someone mentioned that we were going to Comic-Con to the ambassador. And the ambassador, unbeknownst to me at the time, was also kind of into geek culture. (laughs) And he said, I'm going to Comic-Con. I'm going to be there. And so we had set up our booth. We were doing outreach. It was such a success. We signed up hundreds of people for membership at the U.S. Embassy-owned library so that we could do more programs and more outreach with them. We talked to thousands of young people who came for kind of entertainment at Comic-Con and their interest was piqued when they saw the U.S. Embassy was there, and they asked us questions on everything from visas. We were able to give them information on how to apply for a visa and, and what they needed to know for that. We, they asked us questions about how they can study in the United States. It was so much fun. We're actually making a difference in the lives of these young people, like many of whom had never interacted directly with the U.S. government before. That was their impression of the United States, was that coming to our booth, and talking to us and then seeing our ambassador dressed as Obi-Wan Kenobi and we just randomly came across another guy cosplaying Darth Vader and he he mock challenged the ambassador to a duel and so they fake dueled in Nairobi Comic Con and like the kid there was like youth cheering but after that We not only did all of that outreach and established that positive impression in those relationships with all those youth, but the organizers of Nairobi Comic Con became really good partners and good friends of ours. And so, I mean, I was just so amazed and blown away by what an amazing event they put on. And so I think we learned a lot from them as well in terms of how to run good outreach and how to organize an event that does so much in so little time and still make such a big impact on people. And so to have been given that empowerment from my boss and from my leadership to be able to do all of that, basically, as soon as I hit the ground in Mm -hmm. Kenya, I mean, that was really validating to me. That made me feel, okay, our work is important. Our work does make a difference. And I am going to be equipped with the tools I need to be able to do it in this job. And that to me has just kind of continued on through the years since but that experience I think I'll always cherish.
0: I think you put it so perfectly that you guys are the face of the United States and that is so neat that you guys were able to bring that component and establish that connection. And so what's a bad day at work or what's a challenge that you frequently face?
1: Kind of related to what we were talking about before with diversity I think it can still it can still be a challenge when there's a certain expectation of the United States abroad. So the the classic saying is that the Foreign Service used to be known as male, pale, and Yale. (laughs) That it was only white guys who had graduated from Ivy League schools that were getting into the Foreign Service. I really do think that has changed. I think the current Foreign Service is no longer male, pale, and Yale. The leadership is increasingly diverse. But in a lot of cases, People's perception of the United States is still a little bit old school. And so I remember, for example, having a partnership with a local university. And because of the program we were doing together, I would have to go to that university in person every single month to go check up on things. So I would go there, I'd be in a car with diplomatic plates, I'd have my diplomatic passport, and I always had to. Get out of the car, even though I explained I was a diplomat, I had to get out of the car, like go through security with everybody else and so on. And I always thought that was a little bit strange since they knew I was coming in advance. I made sure I was on the guest list and I wouldn't normally be in line going through the same procedures that students at that school are going through because I wasn't there for school. I was there for a work meeting. And one time I went on my monthly meeting with my boss's boss, who Maybe fit the traditional image of a diplomat more in people's minds. And we got there, he waved to security and we just went right on through. And I was thinking, I've been coming here every single month. I don't know if he's even been here before, but they just waved him right on through. And I actually brought it up with my partner, who I, the partner on the project, who I had been meeting every single time. And he was shocked that security had been pulling me aside that whole time. So he called them to tell them that wasn't acceptable and learned that a lot of them didn't believe me when I said that I was a diplomat. And they assumed that I might have been a diplomat's child, but they thought I was a student at the school. So even when I came in a car with diplomatic plates and showed them my diplomatic passport and told them I'm the diplomat, some of them were still not convinced and assumed you know that because of the way that I looked, that I wasn't the diplomat. And I've had other experiences abroad. Probably the worst one was when there are certain countries where I've been, where people assumed because of the way that I looked, that I wasn't American, because mm-hmm. I wasn't white enough. I did not have that problem in Kenya, because to a Kenyan, I look very white. But in other places where I've lived, I'm I'm mixed Korean and American, actually, by heritage. But I'm ethnically ambiguous. And I've been in places where people assumed I wasn't American, or in the worst case, I was shopping once with one of my friends who was very blonde and very kind of white and very stereotypical, what people imagine when they think of an American or a European, in this case, she was European. And I remember we were getting groceries and the cashier handed me her groceries and I couldn't figure out why. and After I asked, she said that it's because she assumed I was her maid because I just looked like a maid. I didn't look like a Western expat. I looked like someone who would be a servant in in a Western expat's household because of my appearance. And I just remember at the time feeling so outraged and offended because, like not because there's anything wrong with being a servant, but because someone can look at me and think I can't be American or I can't be from the United States. I have to be an employee of someone who's from the United States. That really stuck with me. And um, because I'm ethnically ambiguous, I get treated a little bit differently depending on, on where I'm going. And this hasn't happened to me, but has happened to some of my colleagues who are African-American or or Black American, or from certain other racial and ethnic backgrounds where they've been doing, for example, a visa interview, and the applicant says, well, can I speak to a real American when they're unsatisfied with the decision? And so that has never happened to me, but it has happened to some of my friends. And that type of thing can be really difficult, because I still think in some places there's this image in the uh, United, someone from the United States looks a certain way, Someone once said, an American's coming. I showed up. They were disappointed. And I asked them, what were you expecting? And I remember they said, Pamela Anderson. And I'm like, well, (laughs) I regret to inform you that there's only one Pamela Anderson. (laughs) And most people from the United States don't look like that. Or I, I think there's a lot of misconception about what people from the United States actually are and mm-hmm. how diverse we are and how different we can look and how we can still all be together as one country, even though we're different and we celebrate our difference. That's one of the things that makes us really strong. But I think sometimes dealing with things like that can be a really big challenge. And you know, I, I've only had a few instances here and there. There are other folks where it can really affect an entire tour Uh, because of the way that they're treated. And so that's something that I think is a huge challenge and I don't take lightly. It's something that's really difficult for us to address but I think with the foreign service becoming more diverse even just sometimes before I even do anything just me showing up and saying, I'm from the US I'm the US diplomat that's already changed someone's perception of who that can be. And that to me means a lot. I try now to have a more positive spin on it and see it as an opportunity for me to challenge that perception and hopefully change that perception. So maybe the next person who they talk to won't have that same experience. I don't think it's unique to us, but I do think sometimes uh, those experiences can be magnified. And I would recommend if there are listeners who are interested in learning more about that that folks read the words of a former diplomat who left the Foreign Service. Her name is Tiana Spears. And she wrote about some of the experiences that she had being threatened uh, as a result of being a Black diplomat and how that colored her experiences as an entry-level officer. And so I don't want to, I don't want to make light of that. Uh, I will say I, I think it's getting better. And I think stories like Tiana's and uh, others who have had the courage to raise their voice have really helped more people understand understand what those from underrepresented groups or those who don't fit a certain image or a certain mold that other people have of what we should look like are going through so that we can bring it out into the light and address it and hopefully make it better
0: that has to feel gratifying just knowing that you guys are part of this change of breaking down those stereotypes or that expectation of what an american is supposed to look like because our country is so diverse.
1: I don't want to claim that it's just other people about the United States. I mean, for like, we have those stereotypes too. So for example, my um, my mom is Korean and people have this image of what a Korean person looks like that's very, you know, white, pale skin from all the K-beauty whitening products and this straight, silky black hair, and my mom has curly hair and darker skin, and so I know we often have this kind of K-drama perception of what a Korean looks like, and we might do the same thing, so I don't think by any means this is something the United States has all figured out, but I hope that we as kind of a global community, the more we build those relationships with people, the more I think we'll come to realize that, that we look more different than we think, but we also have more in common than we think.
0: So do you have a really weird or funny or unexpected situation that you've encountered?
1: Something that I thought was funny is that I probably have more of a communications background than than most coming into the foreign service. I got my master's degree in global communication. I took public speaking classes. I briefly worked on another podcast called Matters of State that uh, we did in graduate school for international affairs oh. topics. And I came in and part of my training was learning how to respond to tough questions. And I thought, okay, this, and the training was really good, but I thought, what are the chances that me as an entry-level officer is going to come up against questions like that? I go to my first tour and it's one of the first outreach events I'm doing. And it was supposed to be talking about, I think it was like U.S.-Kenyan partnership on promoting economic empowerment, something that I thought, oh, this is such a great topic. Like we have such a strong relationship. I've studied the talking points. So I know I have all my facts and my language correct and in line with U.S. policy. I think I was talking to middle school kids. And so I'm thinking, oh, these kids are going to be so cute. And then I give my little presentation and then the question and answer session starts. And they're like, can you comment on how the Trump administration is changing policy towards Jerusalem and Palestine? And then someone else said, you know, what is the current military stance with North Korea? And I got all of these questions that were such hardball questions about U.S. policy that of course I had not memorized the topic for the talking points or uh, the materials for those things. I think I kind of had to hang my head a little bit and say, I'll need to, Clarify, you know, the U.S. foreign policy on that, and get back to you. That totally changed my mind. Um, you know, I thought what I may be perceived to be a softball event may turn out to not be the case. One, but two, dang, I was just so impressed with these Kenyan kids that I talked to that day and how well versed they were on foreign policy and current events and what was going on in the world. It just blew me away, and so. I think I've learned so much from experiences like that, Uh, even, even in my own supposed field of expertise, I've had a lot to learn.
0: And finally, what advice or takeaway would you want to share with any listeners who might be interested in pursuing a career like this, on top of the very valuable information that you've given?
1: Of all of the nuggets that I shared, the biggest nugget, I think, is if you're interested, just start applying you never know what's going to happen. You never know how long it's going to take. Just go for it. There's no disadvantage to trying and there is no disadvantage to taking more than one try to get in. I'm proof of that. Like I said, this career has been so rewarding and has been so much more than I even imagined it would be back when I was, obsessed with uh, trying to get in. And so I would love for other people who haven't had the opportunity to learn about the foreign service from a young age, like I did, to be able to help us do this important and challenging and great work and to help us be the face of the United States of America overseas and to help us advance foreign policy and national security. It's fantastic work and we need fantastic people. And so that's kind of the biggest takeaway if you take nothing else from this then to just apply if you're interested and of course there's all those other resources that I shared there's all these foreign service blogs with advice including mine you can take as much as you'd like and leave as much as you'd like but at the end of the day I think the most important thing is to just give it a chance and see if if it works for you and if it works for your family
0: a big thank you to Nicole for donating her time to the show Check out the episode notes for all of the links mentioned today, including the fellowships, most up-to-date information on foreign service careers, as well as Tiana Spears' account. Check back in June for Season 3, where we will talk with a flight attendant, an attorney, a news producer, and more. Thanks for listening.